Good morning, church. Um, as Matt said, my name's Joel. I forgot to introduce myself earlier, um, but I'm Joel, and I'm an elder here with Matt and Mark and Jeremiah, and it's my joy and privilege this morning uh, as the body of Christ to, to open the Word together and to continue in our series in Acts. Um, and this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. So if you've brought a Bible, go ahead and find that. Um, if you haven't brought a Bible, we have some paperback Bibles that are in the seats, and you can grab one of those and feel free to make it your own. If there's something that, that strikes you as God's just speaking to us this morning, write it down in the margin. Take the Bible home with you. Uh, maybe don't tear the page out, but that's okay. I mean, whatever. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Make it yours, okay? And then um, we'll go from there. So we're going to be in Acts chapter, nine, or chapter 11, 19 through 30, but I want to begin this morning um, from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we continue to look at, at what the whole point of this sermon series is and the, the whole point of God establishing His church is right here in Acts 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, we've titled this sermon series, Witnesses, um, and it was done on purpose. There's, we are called to be witnesses. I was looking in the dictionary, and there's two, two uh, definitions of witness that I want to press into this morning. Um, one of them is this observation of seeing something happen, of witnessing by looking and experiencing at what God has done. And so the, the first definition is something serving as evidence or proof. We see it. We know that it's true because we saw it with our own eyes. And there's a second definition of witness that we're also called to, and that definition of witness is to testify to, to bear witness. See, not only can we just see what has happened, but now we're called to declare and to proclaim what we saw, what we know to be true. And so this morning, as we're going through and we're looking at what God does in the church of Antioch, I want us to keep those things in mind. What are we seeing? And then what is our proclamation because of that? What is God calling us to speak and to share? The disciples that we've been following for the last 10 chapters, they're doing some some things in the name of Jesus that are awesome, right? We've seen them heal the sick. We've seen all kinds of power of the Holy Spirit. But these disciples were first witnesses to Jesus, they walked with Jesus. They, they had table fellowship with him. They knew him. They heard his words, right? They saw his compassion towards those that were outcasts. He saw his compassion towards those that were elite and even, even bringing con- uh, conviction, right? And a, and a hard word. That was still compassion and love. And his healing of the sick and the broken. They saw and witnessed Jesus. And now we're seeing what they did with that and how they're bearing witness, how they're testifying to that Jesus, the one that we're speaking of, this is what he did. This is who he is. And they're going everywhere and they're sharing that witness. And so that's the model that we see in Acts. And so this morning, we're going to continue to see that as he establishes a particular church. He's establishing his whole church, but this morning we see him establish a particular church in Antioch. And so we begin with the scripture. Again, Acts chapter 11, 
verses 19 through 30. Follow along as I read. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Pray with me, please. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, you are sharing with us the witness of who Christ is and what he has done by reading your word. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth and to believe it to be true. Lord, we know that only by the power of your spirit can hearts be converted, can lives be transformed, can the sick be healed. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and in our minds. God, that you would stir in us conviction this morning. God, seeing ways where where we have forgotten who you are. Lord, that you would stir in us repentance to repent of those things. And that you would remind us again of your faithfulness to establish your church, to make your name great. Lord, we uh, thank you for it. We thank you that you're going to do that this morning. We ask that you would be with uh, the preschool class, Lord, that they would hear your name and believe that you are everything that you say you are. We ask for the nursery, that, that the partners in there would encourage and build up and share the love of Jesus with, with small children. We ask for you to be with Sandy and Jeremiah as they're um, out of town and at a conference. I pray that they would re- be refreshed and renewed and restored. God, you know the other things that are on our hearts this morning. And so, Lord, we, we ask that in this moment that we would trust you with those things, that we would be able to put some of those things aside, maybe that we've been carrying all week, and we'd hear your word. God, and it would stir in us joy and gladness and that we would go out and be the church as you've called us to be. We thank you that you are doing that this morning, that you're the only one that can do that this morning, and so we give you all the praise and all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to walk through the passage um, kind of with two aspects that we're looking at. First is just observing how God establishes this church in Antioch. 
Um, we're going to see that he does it and that people see it and they rejoice and then they go out and they participate in what he's doing. Uh, it's kind of the same story that we read throughout all of the Bible, that God does something and then he invites us in to participate. And there's joy and rejoicing and worship. And so we're going to see that this morning. And then there's also three aspects that I want to look at at the end of, of how did this happen? What does this look like? Let's pull some things out of what it means to be the church as we look at this church in Antioch. One of the things that uh, kind of a disclaimer to start with is as we see God work, we can tend to think that it's a prescriptive thing and that we need to go and find something like that. Um, And yet God is calling us to be this wherever we are. And so as we look particularly at a church in Antioch, and and we'll get into it a little bit about what, what the city of Antioch looked like, we can start to think, man, I want that. Right. And, and forget that God has placed us here in this moment. And we have that. We have a, a diverse culture of, of people that really need to hear Jesus and see him. And so this morning, we're going to just look at the first three verses, 19, 20 and 21 for this first section. And it says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. We need to remember Stephen. Kids, if you don't remember, um, Stephen was a man who preached the gospel. He stood in front of a large crowd of people who really didn't, some of them didn't want to hear the gospel. And he stood because he felt like God had told him to, and he preached the gospel. And in the end, he was, he was killed for preaching the gospel. They, they threw stones at him and killed him. And we know that Saul was part of the people that stoned him. And yet, later on, a couple of chapters ago, we saw that God radically confronted Saul and changed his heart and said, revealed to him that he was everything that he believed he had been waiting for and longing for. And now here's Jesus. And so Saul has this radical conversion. But, but we remember Stephen and the persecution that happened. And that persecution, that anger and hatred towards the gospel, actually drove the, the, the gospel further. And we see that as we read through. The persecution, it says in verse 19, that arose over Stephen caused these those who were scattered to go as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so in our, in our, the mind, the map in our mind, we see um, Israel. And then above that is Phoenicia, which is modern day Lebanon. And so all of these people are traveling long distances, um, trying to find some place where they can preach the word and people would hear it and rejoice And they go to Cyprus, which is an island off of the coast in the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 miles off the coast. And then eventually they get all the way up to Syria and into Antioch. And so we're looking particularly at the church that gets planted in Antioch today. But, But it's the gospel is being driven forward by persecution. And sometimes we think, man, why would God allow that persecution to happen? And yet then we remember Wait, that's what's driving all these people to go further with the gospel. To witness the people that may have never heard it, except that the persecution happened. So how great is our God that he would allow that? And then in the midst of that, he would suffer with them and, and comfort them in their suffering. And so this morning, we look at Antioch. I want to give you a couple facts about Antioch. Um, 
We need to know the city that God is doing all of us in. Um, it helps the kids and it helps me to, to kind of invest myself to say, oh, that's what's going on there. So Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire is the empire that governs the whole world at this time. And so it's the third largest city and it's the gate to the east. So people that would leave Rome or, or the, where the Roman Empire is established and come anywhere into Asia or into uh, the Middle East, our current Middle East, they would go through Antioch. It was a major byway and it had a thriving economy because of the port that was there. And then the, the river, uh, the Orontes River was there and major roads go through it. So it's this big city with tons of different people from tons of different places, and they're all gathering together, and this is where the gospel is going to enter in, and it's going to establish this church that's going to do some some really cool things in the coming chapters. It was also a very religious city. Um, They had temples to Artemis and to Heracles. They hosted the Olympics, Um, and so this, this city is really catering to what the people want. And so in the midst of that comes Jesus with his gospel. So it's a city that's ripe for the gospel. So that's the, that's the where. The who is just some unknown, unnamed guys, probably gals too. It says men, but I'm sure it was a group of people. All right? And so as we look in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered, no names, just people that are being scattered. They're speaking the word. They're, they're speaking the word to the Jews first. And then we keep reading in 20. It says, but there were some of them, again, no names, just people that are impressed, that have heard the gospel, that are driven by that gospel to share it with other people. And we see that they, they go and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. And who are they preaching it to? They're preaching it to the Hellenists. This is the Greek-speaking people. I think it's key, too, that they're preaching the Lord Jesus. And we're going we're gonna to sit here for a moment and hear that they're, they're preaching the Lord Jesus. This is the gospel that they preach to a people that don't know the gospel, that have no expectation of the gospel. They're actually pursuing everything that they want. But how is the gospel being presented to them? To the Jews, it was presented as, here's the Messiah. Here's the one that you've been waiting for your whole life. The one that the scripture, all of the scripture speaks to. But these Hellenists, they had no idea of the scripture. They didn't care. And so how is the gospel being preached to them? And I want to look. It says, preaching the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 20. You see, while they may not have had an idea of a Messiah, they understood lordship. They understood a ruler, right? They all lived under one emperor who is deified as a God. And so they understood, hey, if that guy says something, I have to follow it. And they also had governors and they had different, they had masters and slaves. And so people understood that, hey, I have a Lord. I have somebody that can tell me what to do. If they were in the army, which many of them were because the Romans had a very large army, they would have generals and they would have centurions that would tell them what to do. And you couldn't argue with them. You would go and do it. If, if, the, if they told you to attack, you would attack, even if you're scared, right? And so they understood this idea of Jesus as Lord. They knew that a Lord demanded obedience. 
So even though it was a contextual gospel, right? They, the, these people spoke and spoke of Jesus as Lord. He was also the Messiah, but they wanted to, to make it relevant to the context that they were in. They didn't water it down. They didn't make it appealing. They didn't make it something that people would want because who wants another Lord when you already have that many people telling you what you can and can't do? But they understood the idea of Lord. And so these people, the, the disciples preached the Lord Jesus. And they preached that Jesus was a better Lord, that he was a just Lord. They preached that he was the Savior. And Lord. And then the last verse in this section is really where I feel that the gist of the sermon is. It says, The hand of the Lord was with them. So these disciples, they want to, they want to declare, they want to see the work of God happen, but unless the hand of the Lord is going with them, it's not going to happen. But in Antioch, the hand of the Lord was with them, and we see that a great number who believed turned to the Lord. We believe that God is establishing his church. He's using us. He's using frail humanity to do it. But we know that it's God's church. He's begun it. We've seen it throughout all of Acts, right? The, the God establishing his church has been consistent. There's references to the Holy Spirit filling and falling, right? God moving through the power of his Holy Spirit. There's references to visions being given. Last week, we looked at the vision that was given to Peter. There's people being healed and raised to life. Again, like Matt said, they were, they were dead, dead, and God raised them to life. So it's only God that can do those things. So we know that God is about the business of establishing his church. And yet, the disciples are invited to participate in that. They're the ones that are declaring, preaching the Lord Jesus to everyone that they're coming in contact with. And so we see it here. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord through the preaching of the Lord Jesus. The next section, verses 22 through 26 <clears throat> says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So the church that's in Jerusalem, that God had established in Jerusalem, hears about people being saved, people rejoicing, believing that the gospel's true up in Antioch. And so they send Barnabas to go and to check it out and, and to encourage them. And so he goes, and what does he see? He sees the grace of God. He sees people that were far away now being brought into the family of God. He sees lives being radically transformed. He sees sinners being saved. And he rejoices at the grace of God. It says that he was glad. We know that it's only by grace that we're saved. We've read it together. 
But there's a greater understanding of people, the, the Gentile understanding of grace. They were, they were cast out. They were, not, they were not even able to be brought into the family, and yet Christ has done it, and he revealed himself last week. We saw it when he revealed the vision to Peter. And Peter sees all of these things that were ritually unclean come down. And in that vision, he's struggling because he's told to go and eat. And he says, I can't eat that. That's unclean. And yet God speaks. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This vision didn't have to do with the animals or, or that. It had to do with the people that God is redeeming for himself. And we rejoiced in that last week, and we continue to rejoice that God is doing this thing, that he is redeeming for himself a people that were unclean, that were common, and he has now called us clean. Barnabas comes, and he sees that same thing happening in Antioch, and he rejoices. He is glad. He's overflowing with this gladness. It says that Barnabas is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, that he's a good man, full of faith. We read that, and we're like, man, I want to be that guy. And then we, then we immediately start to think, what do I need to do to get there? How do, I, how do I make myself a better man? How do I become that good man? And yet we know that this is a gift of God in itself to Barnabas and to the church as a whole. God is the one that produces faithfulness in Barnabas. God is the one that takes his sin and his shame and gives him the gift of righteousness so that he can be called a good man. God is the one that gives him faith to believe. All of those things are a gift of God. So as God establishes his church through weak and frail people that we look to, and, and man, it says, Joel, you're saying he's frail, but it says that he was a good man. He was a good man because God made him a good man, because God filled him with righteousness because of what Jesus had done. And so he goes boldly and, and gladly proclaiming the gospel. These are not things that Barnabas in and of himself can achieve. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit that are put into his heart and into his, into his life so that God can continue to make his name known. And he's doing it. Barnabas goes and he's, he's glad and he's encouraged and he goes and he grabs Saul and he goes and finds Saul and he's like, man, there's a group of believers and we've got to go because they need to hear the fullness of the gospel. Barnabas, because he had received such grace, when he sees that same grace in others, he rejoices. He's glad. He celebrates it because he knows that God is faithful and that he's doing a good work. The last section, um, we've seen the hand of God that's upon his church. We've seen a response to that hand of God, the grace of God moving, that, that it stirs up rejoicing, worship, gladness in our hearts. And then God moves in his church to act. Verse 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. When we see the hand of the Lord, when we see the grace of our God, 
we're glad. We get excited. But it doesn't just stop there. Now he's inviting us to participate in his moving, in his doing. We have this opportunity to hear of a need and then to go and to meet it. And we see it in the, in the church in Antioch. And also we see that even here, God is initiating it. See, it's God's church and he's doing it because Agabus not by himself prophesies that this is going to happen. It's not some knowledge that he has that, oh yeah, I've, I know what's going to happen. No, it's the Holy Spirit of God revealing to him that this is going to happen for his church to respond and to go and to be the church. It says that Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And thankfully, Luke, he's really generous and kind here. He says it's true. It actually happened in the, took place in the days of Claudius. So we don't even have to guess. It actually happened, this famine. And these people really did send resources to, to be compassionate, to meet the need. And how does the church respond? They determined, and then they acted. You see, and they had done it. it it's got to be in this order. It's got to be that God moves, that we rejoice in what God has done out of gratitude for his generosity. We, too, become generous. We, too, can give. If we get that out of order, it's not going to go so well because we can try to be good people. We can try to do good things. But unless our response is to who God is, and it's done out of gratitude for a great Savior who has saved us, all we're doing is pursuing our own self-righteousness. But if God has done it, and we see the grace of God, and it stirs in us this joy that we can't help but, but preach the gospel to our neighbors, preach the gospel to our children, anybody that'll listen, Jew, Gentile, anybody, I'll start telling them because my God is great. And then it stirs us to action. And so we look, and they said that they determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. I think it's worth noting that the foretelling of this famine is for the whole world, not just for Judea. Because it could be easy that in, in this moment we're like, oh, they heard of a need. But they also heard of a need that they were going to have. That famine was going to affect them too. And yet they, could, they trusted in a God who has sufficient supply to meet every need to say, hey, if we have enough to give, let's give. Let's not hoard and, and keep it safe for us. Let's go and, and meet the need. And so they did, had to determine that in their own hearts, and then they acted. See, this is God continuing to establish his church across all dividing lines and giving us a glimpse of restoration. These are people that, that probably the Hellenists didn't know. They didn't know the the people in Judea. They had met Barnabas, and he was a great guy, and so they, maybe they thought that everybody was like him, right? And so, But they had been impressed by the Holy Spirit that there was a need, and they were going to go and, and help people that they didn't even know. It might be a little convicting. It's convicting for me because I think about the people that I do know <laughs> that I don't help, right? And God's calling us to, to be the church to those that even we don't know. I think this... This passage has three applications for us, the church, this morning. Um, we're going to walk through each one, but the first one is evangelism. 
that these people that are unnamed, they spoke the gospel to everyone that they came in contact with. There's discipleship. Barnabas goes and he grabs Saul and he come, brings them back and they spend a year revealing to, them, revealing to the church in Antioch that not only is he Lord, but he's the Messiah. He's the one that was promised for thousands of years. Look at all these prophecies and they would just unfold the prophecies of the Old Testament and say, look, he's fulfilling this. This is the same Jesus. And then we see mission and ministry. Evangelism, the gospel. We read it. I'm going to read it again. Ephesians chapter 2. Because we need it. it. This needs to sit in our hearts. And this needs to be what spurs us on. We all read it together. And you were dead in, our trust, in your trespasses and sin. It's the bad news first, right? And I'm sure there was some bad news for these guys in Antioch that had been pursuing their own flesh, their own desires that had been looking for comfort and control. And so the bad news first was, hey man, you're a sinner. You want these things more than you want a God who satisfies all of your wants and all of your desires and all of your needs. And you've been pursuing these things and you've tried to set up your own kingdom, but there's a God and a Lord who is a just king and he's come and that his justice is bad news for sinners. So first, there's, there's the bad news of the gospel. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's us, sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind. Man, that's got to be the church in Antioch. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But here's, here's the twist. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. This is the gospel that we proclaim. This is the gospel that should stir our hearts, that we should see the fruit of it taking place. We should be glad and rejoice in it. But God, being rich in mercy, he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins, to take our sin and our shame. And all of those first four verses where we like, man, that's just some rotten stuff. Yeah. And Jesus came and he died and he took it. And he exchanged in that moment. He atoned for our sin and he exchanged his righteousness, his perfect life. And now it's credited to to us that we can walk in righteousness, that we can be filled by the power of his spirit, that we can be the good man that Barnabas is said to be, not by his own work, but by the power of the Holy Spirit of God moving and through him because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so this is the evangelistic piece. This is what God is calling us to do, to declare this, to proclaim it, to live it out, to walk in righteousness. When we don't walk in righteousness, to quickly repent and say, man, I forgot about how great my God is. I've allowed these, the cares of this world to, to weigh heavy on me. I've acted out of anger and bitterness, trying to control things that are not in my control. I repent of those things. God, you are my Lord. You are in control. You have done it and you can do it and you are doing it. And so we repent and we believe that the gospel is true. And we run quickly to the cross and say, God, thank you. Thank you for dying for that, that sin, for that shame, for restoring right relationship. There's a recent Barna survey 
that's just come out on, on the Gospel Coalition sharing with us that 47% of millennials believe that it's wrong to share their faith, to evangelize. I think about that and I just think that that's, like I want to be really judgmental and be like, man, that, those guys are wrong. But then I look at my life and I say, I don't, I don't automatically do that. I don't proclaim. I don't evangelize. What's holding, what, why am I afraid of this? What, is, what am I more concerned about that I will not share this beautiful, wonderful gospel that I have, that I believe to be true, and I don't share it with the people that, that I'm with, in contact with all the time. And so this morning, I, I pray that we're convicted. I do. I, I pray that we're convicted, that it doesn't bring condemnation. It actually brings joy. That we can say, you know what? I have this. This is mine because of what Christ has done and I cling to it and now I'm going to share it because it's the best thing that I have. The fact that I was a sinner, Christ died for me. He rose again. He's given me victory. He's given me his righteousness because of his work on the cross. As we read Ephesians 2, it says in Christ, with Christ, because of Christ. All of those things are done. And so we have the opportunity to share that good news of the gospel. Maybe this morning you're hearing this for the first time. I'm telling you that it's for you and I'm glad that you're here and that you're hearing it. I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to, to just set it in your heart, that you would grab a hold of it and say, that's mine. That's for me. So evangelism, second piece is discipleship. We look and we see how, how Barnabas went and he got Saul, who's going to become Paul. Those are interchangeable. Maybe we get confused. Kids, don't get confused. That's Paul. He's the guy that wrote all of these books of the Bible. And now he's coming and he's teaching in the church in Antioch for a year. And so all of these letters, all of these great things that we read, Ephesians, he's teaching these same truths to them to say, listen, you're going to forget tomorrow. Here it is again. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we got to remember it too. We're going to forget. We're going to forget by Monday. And so we turn to our, our husbands and our wives and our children. And we remind, hey, this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done. And we disciple each other and we encourage one another. And we're quickly running back to the cross of Christ. And so there's evangelism, there's discipleship. And then we see the fruit of all of this. That it's going out and it's producing this, this mission, living on mission, living with your eyes lifted up so that you can see the hurting and the broken and you can offer this good, sweet truth that you have and at the same time offer resources. Calling you out of your comfort zone, out of your place of, that. wait, there's a famine coming? I should probably take care of me and mine first. And that's just our natural bent. And God is calling us to move beyond that and to say, God, what are you doing? And I will go, and my family will go, and we're going we're gonna to be part of what you're calling us to. They're going and they're giving. And so the response this morning is we've heard the gospel. We're being discipled in it. There's this thing that's being rooted in our souls that's taking place. And now we see, we lift up our eyes, and we see the hurting and the broken around us. And God says, go, share with them the gospel. Give what you can, meet the needs that you can, 
Not because you're a good man, not because you're full of faith, but because I've given you the gift of faith, because I've given you everything that you need. And I'm establishing my church for my glories. And that's, that's his whole goal. He wants to be glorified. And so we have the opportunity to invite others to participate in that. And I would just continue to challenge us with those things, evangelism, discipleship, living on mission, ministering the gospel, meeting the tangible needs of our neighbors and our friends, our enemies. God tells us to love our enemies. So whoever we're, whoever we're with, let's go. Let's share the gospel. Let's live out everything that we say we believe because we do believe it. And God's stirring it in us. And we have the opportunity now to go and do it. I pray that that would be true for us this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you that um, you are doing all of these things. So even as we sit here um, and we begin to think about all of the things that we can do, and and maybe it's overwhelming, um, I pray that you would just give us encouragement this morning, knowing that everything that you're doing, you're actually, by the power of your spirit, stirring it in our hearts. And then not only do you stir it in our hearts, but then you walk with us and give us faithfulness to complete it. You give us compassion to suffer with those who are suffering. God, all of this is done by your spirit. And so we thank you. We rejoice in the hope that is your glory. God, I do pray that we would read your word, that we'd see your hand that's upon us. God, that there would be gladness in our hearts because you are saving the lost, because you are healing the sick, because you, in the person of Jesus Christ, have done everything that we need. I pray that there would be gladness and rejoicing. And I pray that out of that gladness, out of that joy, we would go and we would be the church that you've called us to be, that we would lift up our eyes, that we would see the lost We would point them to you, that we would see the broken, and we would speak of the fullness that we find in Christ. God, stir our hearts this morning. Give us a passion for you that's greater than anything else that we were passionate about. Thank you that you're doing this. We love you and we praise you in your name. In the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Amen.